You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we are really honored today to have with us uh, Barry Eichengreen. Uh, Barry, uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Barry is the George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, we wanted to invite you because uh, Peter Rashish and I, Peter, the Senior Fellow and Director of the Geoeconomics Program here at AICGS, uh, have read your recent article. It's in the July-August edition of Foreign Affairs, uh, the title, What Money Can't Buy. The limits of economic power. And when we look at uh, the transatlantic uh, reactions and the, uh, the broader international reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think there are few, fewer topics more uh, timely uh, than, than the one you've uh, sought out. So we wanted to pick up on that and, and uh, try to go a little deeper with you on, on economic power and the role it plays. Um, if I could start off, uh, you know, of course, this is a topic that's at the front of our minds uh, as the United States, the European Union, the G7 have imposed economic sanctions on Russia. I mean, these seem to have a few goals simultaneously. On the one hand, to punish, uh, but perhaps more importantly, to impede the ability of Russia to access certain, uh, certain materials, especially high-tech materials necessary for its, uh, its military. Um, and at the same time to coerce. Um, do you think these sanctions are having any of those desired effects? Um, uh, or do you think we need to rethink the question of economic uh, coercion? I think that's a good introduction, Jeff, but I would add yet another objective of, of sanctions, which is to deter. Um, right. But uh, it's too early to tell, obviously. Um, how all this will uh, play out. Uh, I think uh, there is currently a debate in the economics community over uh, whether the sanctions on Russia have been effective in terms uh, of uh, increasing the cost, economic cost to Russia of waging this war. So, uh, the fact that the ruble exchange rate plummeted uh, at the outset when the sanctions were imposed, but has recovered now, has raised questions about whether the Russian economy is really suffering or not. I think if you look broadly, not only at financial indicators, but more broadly, you see that, yes, uh, uh, the sanctions are increasing the economic costs to Russia of waging the war that the International Monetary Fund came out earlier this week with its latest projections for the Russian and world economies. Uh, it anticipates that the Russian economy will contract by 9% over this year and next year, which is three times the contraction it suffered in 2020 due to the uh, onset of the COVID pandemic. So there are significant economic costs to the Russian people as a whole um, in, in, in terms of, uh, of making it more difficult for 
Russia to actually prosecute the war, you need a, a military strategist and not an international economist to answer that question. But I have come across plenty of anecdotal evidence of parts shortages, increasing difficulty that the Russian military has in flying its aircraft for lack of spare parts and, uh, and the like that suggest that um, sanctions are having some effect there. Will they cause the Russian government to change course in, in, in terms of how aggressively and for how long and for with what objectives it wages the war? Time will tell. There's been no sign of uh, substantial changes in uh, uh, objectives and tactics that I can see. Yet, uh, unfortunately, it still may be early. We'll have to wait more months uh, to see. Uh, I think um, one thing we know is that sanctions are more effective in coercing democratic regimes, leaders of democratic regimes, where the public feels the economic pain and it can rise up against the leader than they are in coercing autocratic regimes. So that leaves me a little pessimistic on that score. And finally, deterrence. Uh, uh, again, the picture there is mixed. On the one hand, many of us thought at the outset that these aggressive sanctions against Russia would deter other countries from taking similar action. But now we hear a lot of chatter around China and Taiwan to the contrary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanna pick up on the question of regime, regime type, which, which you highlighted. Uh, and um, you know, if regime type matters, um, it also, does it also apply to another principle you highlight in your in your article in Foreign Affairs, which is that economic power is more effective um, when it offers positive incentives rather than sanctions and punishments? Um, so, if the sanctions and punishments don't work um, particular don't work as well against authoritarian regimes um, compared to democratic ones, does the same hold? for uh, for the positive incentives? That's an interesting question, and I don't have an immediate answer to it. I think insofar as authoritarian leaders and, and, and regimes are insulated from uh, pressure from below, both complaints from below about poor economic conditions and positive reinforcement from below, insofar as things are going better economically and financially, both the positive and the negative will work less well against authoritarian regimes. That would be my guess. Mm -hmm. If I could um, shift the conversation just just a bit, um, in terms of the the forms that economic power can take, um, do you see trade policy as, and trade um, agreements as one of those forms, and you know, if so, beyond the the sort of standard macroeconomic arguments made in their favor, greater economic growth, more at least better jobs. I mean, do you think that that trade deals ha- can have non-economic 
benefits? You know, are they a form of economic power that can promote broader political goals? I think that uh, intuition is broadly correct, but again, there is a question of how much difference they can make. So um, in, in, in terms of trade sanctions, which is where you began, Peter, we have the example of the Trump administration's trade policies vis-a-vis -vis China that did not succeed in eliciting substantial changes in, in, in Chinese policy. Maybe positive trade, regional and bilateral trade agreements would uh, have, a, have a more significant effect in terms of uh, locking, helping to lock countries peacefully into an international system. And we can see China going down that road with its regional neighbors. We can see the Biden administration beginning to shift its policy vis-a-vis -vis Asian trade regionalism compared to the more restrictive negative approach of the Trump administration. But I refer you back to the uh, decision to admit China to the World Trade Organization in 2001. The whole rationale there was that this would promote progressive democratic change in China. And uh, admitting China to the WTO had many important effects, just not that one. Could I, if I could chime in on that, because especially the country we deal most frequently with here uh, at the Institute is Germany, uh, which is undergoing a real period of soul searching since its late Cold War and post-Cold War policy toward Russia had the idea of change through trade as a crucial pillar. Um, and and so what I think you're suggesting is is that uh, that is a um, uh, you know there's less than meet the, less there than meets the eye uh, when it comes to uh, the idea of inducing uh, trade through uh, economic engage in, inducing change sorry through economic engagement. Either there is less there, or it takes much longer for the effects to develop, um, and it it could be that the latter is the case and that we uh, simply have to be patient in the case of China in terms of seeing the progressive change that uh, the Clinton administration and others hoped for in, in, in the late 1990s, although so, there's uh, so many new developments disrupting China's, the, the nature of China's engagement with the global economy now that uh, that's a hypothesis that we'll probably never be able to accept or reject. The, you know, the other thing I would say is that trade deals and positive trade deals and economic and financial sanctions, uh, because they work on very different horizons, are appropriate for different circumstances. When you have Russia in in in, in Baiting Ukraine, you want to act quickly, and financial sanctions are are the obvious tool. When you want to cultivate a more more engagement with the global economy over a long horizon, trade deals are probably more appropriate. If I could pick up on the issue of China in your in your foreign affairs piece, um, you say that the future of U.S. economic power will hinge a lot on whether there is cooperation between the US and, and China. Um, so um, that leads me to, in the, hearing what you just said, 
that leads me to uh, ask, or maybe you're suggesting that we, the United States can still have a trade policy that towards China, that incentivizes good behavior and, and, and that the US can still hope to have a kind of mutually beneficial interdependence. It's just that you know the US government has to have the right time horizon. Is, is, is that a right way of looking at it? It would be nice if uh, the US and China could re-engage on a more positive basis. So uh, in the last few days, President Biden and President Xi have had a, a phone call, we are told. Although uh, at the same time, it's striking that the Biden administration has done zip in terms of rolling back Trump's tariffs on uh, China. But I think what we've seen is that uh, sanctions in order to be effective have to be uh, applied by a coalition of countries. And the danger is that some big player uh, doesn't go along with the coalition. Here, it's important to note that China has gone along implicitly and that Chinese banks and the Chinese government have been cautious in avoiding being labeled as sanctions busters. But the scenario that I point to at the end of my foreign affairs piece is where they're no longer cautious and China becomes the, uh, the platform for Russia's clearing of trade and payments and exports of oil and, 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 and gas and so forth and so on, at which point sanctions from the U.S. and its Western allies lose their bite. So I do worry that the ongoing geopolitical and economic tension between the U.S. and China reduces the leverage that the U.S. potentially exercises over renegade governments like Russia's. If you look at the, the um, trade policy debate and including in through the prism of China, um, one of the areas of focus is uh, supply chains. We, we heard Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen, uh, use the term friendshoring to suggest that uh, the US um, and, and you know, like-minded countries like Germany should, should engage in some repatriation of supply chains either you know, back home directly, or at least to sort of friendly countries in the neighborhood. Um, if the U.S. were to engage in that process, um, you know, and other countries um, uh, who share its sort of values and interests generally, do you think that that would um, enhance U.S. economic power or reduce it? Back when I was in school, and that was a long time ago, we were taught uh, comparative advantage and the benefits of international trade. And we were taught the national security exception, that an important exception for the case for free and open trade is national security grounds. So I, I, I do think there is a valid argument in principle for reshoring uh, the production uh, of merchandise that is essential for national security purposes. I think there is. And, and, and I think doing that would in, in enhance U.S. economic and national security. And uh, in, in, in a world where China became uh, a leader in the production of um, world-class frontier semiconductors, which it isn't yet, you know, they come from Taiwan 
and South Korea. Primarily, reshoring that production would uh, in enhance our security and economic leverage vis-a-vis China. There's an, uh, an important caveat here, which is that once you open this Pandora's box, people are free to define uh, uh, merchandise essential for the national security to their advantage. Whatever I produce, whatever uh, I produce in competition with imports from China suddenly becomes uh, an important national security instrument. So who does it? Their finding is important. Yeah. And another then, another way of looking at this, perhaps, but I uh, tell tell me your thoughts. Uh, you know, you've you've talked about the national security uh, exception uh, to the comparative advantage uh, principle. You've also uh, made the point that interdependence is a source of economic power in general. Is there also a question of symmetry and asymmetry that matters? I, I think if we look, for example, at the way Russia has approached its energy relationship with Europe uh, over the last decade and a half or so, uh, it seems to me that one of the characteristics of that has been a, an effort on the Russian side to get out of the the sort of near-term and medium-term dependence on revenues from hydrocarbon sales because Russia's uh, currency reserves were fairly low and, uh, and it had no alternative. Um, whereas uh, in recent years, the Russian state, through rather you know, uh, frugal uh, uh, fiscal policy, has built up enormous uh, reserves that ha- allow it in some ways to weather uh, the storm, or at least not to require the revenues from oil and gas sales. Now, whether they can spend it is a different question, given the, the financial sanctions that have been imposed. But what role does symmetry and asymmetry play, um, if any, in your view? I think these asymmetries are are critical, and we owe that insight to the work of Henry Farrell and Abe Newman, who've written importantly about it. They wrote about the case of SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide uh, Interbank Financial Telecommunications uh, financial messaging between banks as an important choke point that the U.S., by virtue of its big banks who participate in that system had asymmetric leverage over. Uh, But I think the other thing we've learned is we don't understand the nature of these asymmetries well enough now, and we need to invest in understanding them. So the Germans didn't understand their asymmetric relationship with Russia in totality and the extent to which uh, Putin could impose large uh, costs on the Russian and Western European economies by shutting down Nord Stream 1 and all that. So um, part part of it was, uh, as I think you, Jeff, said before, that there were, uh, Chancellor Merkel hoped that she could induce progressive change in Russia. But part of, part of it was that I don't think uh, German policymakers understood adequately the asymmetric nature of their dependence on Russian oil and gas. In your, um, in your article on foreign affairs, I, I, you say some interesting things about sort of non-state actors in the context of economic power. Um, firms, but um, uh, also, also consumers. Um, you know, can and should firms and consumers be expected 
uh, to exert economic power, or may, maybe they, they do so regularly, but can they, can they be expected to do so, or should they be expected to do so in a way that promotes um, you know, the broader interests of, of, of the home country and, and, and helps to, um, and, and you know, in service of impacting how other countries uh, behave? I think the answer is yes, but in different ways and different circumstances. So I've been uh, looking back recently for obvious reasons at the history of World War II, where US firms were instructed by the government uh, by executive order of what to do in the interest uh, of national security and prosecution of the war under less extreme circumstances, like the one fortunately we currently face, uh, it can be in the self-interest of, of companies to exert economic power uh, for McDonald's to uh, close down its operations in, in, in Russia because uh, it has reason to be con concerned about its image and its image matters because what's going on in Ukraine matters to Big Mac consumers. So uh, this is a reminder that uh, economic power tends to be more dispersed than military power. Economic power depends on the individual decisions of thousands and thousands of companies who respond to uh, uh, the preferences of millions of consumers. Where military power is organized hierarchically, there is a general at the top who sends instructions down to his officers in uh, in 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 the field. Another example of this would be uh, recently um, there has been talk about what business should do to aid the uh, Ukrainian economy, both reconstruction after the war, but the financial needs of the Ukrainian government during the war. So Jamie Dimon, of all people, made a speech a couple of, a couple of weeks back about the idea of a solidarity contribution from big banks or big corporations to uh, the Ukrainian budget or to Ukrainian reconstruction. So I think that is an, 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 another example of how business can be involved, how it can, how, how under some circumstances, the interests of business and the interests of our government can be aligned. Although when economic power is so dispersed, there's also a free rider problem. Who goes first? If one bank makes a solidarity contribution, what ensures that others do the same? Another aspect that you highlight in, uh, in your article is the inevitable efforts that adversaries will make to develop alternatives uh, to the systems that get sanctioned. Um, and, and so when we think now about not just the uh, freezing of a large number of Russian assets located outside of Russia, uh, also calls from some quarters, not just to freeze, but to seize um, and use the proceeds um, uh, for funding things like Ukrainian reconstruction. Um, that of course, there is of course a medium to long-term risk that uh, new systems arise over which the United States and its uh, partners in the kind of advanced democracies will have less control and, and therefore by exerting 
power today, you ensure that in the future you may have less of it. But where do you see that uh, that trade-off um, uh, is, uh, and, and do you see the nature of that trade-off changing, especially as we look at the Russian war in Ukraine and the prospect of, of Chinese action against Taiwan? Everybody says, and everybody is right, that these unprecedented financial sanctions against Russia will encourage countries that contemplate at least the possibility of being in the same position that they will redouble their efforts to develop alternatives to uh, US dominated systems on which they depend. The other thing I would emphasize is that uh, this reinforces the importance of coalition building. So take the case of uh, international reserves. The Central Bank of Russia would like to diversify away from the dollar, but diversify toward what becomes the question insofar as Europe and the UK and Japan and South Korea and uh, other countries have all gone along with the same sanctions. That leaves China and the Chinese renminbi as a direction in which to move but uh, again, there's the question of how willing China would be to provide that alternative because it would risk incurring secondary sanctions. Um, where uh, uh, there are existing big platforms with a lot of participants like the uh, interbank market in New York through which cross the, the bulk of cross-border payments are um, uh, completed. There have been ongoing efforts first by Russia and more recently by China to build alternatives to that platform. And what we've seen is that uh, it is possible for China in particular to do that, but progress is very slow. So I think um, even though China is going to redouble its efforts to build an alternative to the New York Bank Clearinghouse now, uh, the, the cross-border interbank payments system based in Shanghai, that process will be laborious. Uh, it won't be, it won't change the international economic and financial landscape anytime soon. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion on economic power, on the ways that uh, governments employ it, on its effectiveness, uh, and how how regime type uh, affects uh, affects that, how if, if I might paraphrase, we sometimes project our own uh, view of the world uh, uh, into the ways we, we believe uh, our actions will affect others, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. And, uh, and in particular, um, the, the risks of, uh, of overuse um, of, of these instruments. So uh, Barry Eichengreen, I want to thank you for spending uh, this time with us. Um, you've, uh, you've really deepened our knowledge, uh, and we're really grateful for that. Thank you, gentlemen. And I want to wish uh, all of our uh, listeners uh, a, a good uh, uh, summer. We will be uh, posting podcasts throughout August, and uh, we look forward to having you with us uh, throughout the month, uh, whatever you're up to, and to having you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. 
Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.